0: For the love of home. Rachel is off tonight, but she will be back again next Monday.
1: So he is back at the scene of the crime. Yesterday, former President Donald Trump returned to Mar-a-Lago, where FBI agents retrieved more than 100 classified documents last month. Trump announced on his social media platform that he went to the scene of the unwarranted, unjust and illegal raid and break-in so he could, quote, see for himself the results of the unnecessary ransacking of rooms in other areas of the House. So sad. Of course, the FBI searched the property last month because records remained missing, even after two of Trump's lawyers wrote and signed a statement certifying all of the missing documents had already been returned. As a result, two of Trump's lawyers, Evan Corcoran and Christina Bob, they are now in need of their own legal representation. As The New York Times reported last week, the lawyers, quote, have subjected themselves to scrutiny by federal law enforcement officials. Investigators are seeking information from Bob about why she signed a statement attesting to full compliance with the subpoena, and they have signaled they have not ruled out pursuing a criminal inquiry into the actions of either Ms. Bob or Mr. Corcoran. As Trump's lawyers are in court fighting the Justice Department over those documents, the former president is now directing his rage not just at the Fed's but also at the state's Republican governor and a potential 2024 contender, Ron DeSantis. Rolling Stone reports that Trump is upset about DeSantis' decision to fly nearly 50 migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard last week, not because he thinks it was a depraved and irresponsible and inhumane practice to target asylum seekers, a practice that local Texas officials are now criminally investigating DeSantis for. No, Trump is angry because, well, it was his idea first. Quote, Trump is telling allies and confidants that he's outraged that DeSantis seems to think he's allowed to steal the ex-president's mantle as both media star and as undocumented immigrant basher-in-chief. Trump has pointedly complained to some of his closest associates that DeSantis is attempting to take the national news cycle away from him. The plan to use black and brown people as pawns, that was his idea. Give him credit, Governor DeSantis. DeSantis. You only got to it first because you're still in office. Mistreating immigrants is Trump's thing. Of course, Trump did implement a lot of awful, cruel, and legally problematic immigration policies during his four years in office. Of all of them, the most morally bankrupt was his family separation policy. In their new book, The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser detail how the Trump administration decided to rip thousands of children and infants out of their parents' arms as an immigration deterrent in 2018. They document how it was decided that would be official Trump administration policy. And they also explore why the White House walked it back. You might remember this infamous White House press briefing, where Trump's second Homeland Security Secretary, Kristen Nielsen, stood at the podium trying to defend that policy.
2: Are the children being used as pawns against the, uh, a four-wall, yes or no? Can you say yes or no to that?
1: The children are not being used as a pawn. We are trying to protect the children. How
3: is this not specifically child abuse for these innocent children who are indeed being separated from their parents?
1: So I want to be a couple clear on a couple other things. The vast majority, vast, vast majority of children who are in the care of HHS right now, 10,000 of the 12,000, were sent here alone by their parents. That's when they were separated. According to Baker and Glasser, behind the scenes, Secretary Nielsen was ready to pack her bags and resign over that policy, which she opposed, when Trump immigration advisor Stephen Miller first began floating it in 2017. Baker and Glasser write that once the public began sounding the alarm, quote, suddenly, Trump officials who had pushed to take away children were denying that was their intent. Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who had privately told prosecutors weeks earlier that we need to take away children, in comments that were only discovered by investigators long afterwards. Sessions now told the public the opposite, saying we do not want to separate parents from their children. Nielsen was apoplectic. This is exactly what I effing said would happen, she told colleagues. Someone needs to get Jeff Sessions on the effing phone and tell him to halt. Even after Trump rescinded the family separation policy that summer, Nielsen's relationship with the president continued to deteriorate because the president continued to ask her to enact illegal immigration policy. As Baker and Glasser report, in 2018, Nielsen was already part of a group of Trump officials, including John Kelly, Jim Mattis, Joe Dunford, Betsy DeVos, Ryan Zinke, who were on the verge of resigning en masse. All of them were worried that Trump was off the rails. By 2019, Nielsen formed a figurative mutual suicide pact with Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar from their new book, quote, from the minute he signed the executive order reversing course on family separations amid a national uproar, Trump basically regretted it and routinely threatened to consider turning it back on. As the president privately agitated to resume the practice, Azar and Nielsen agreed that they would not go along again and formed a mutual suicide pact. If Trump did turn it back on, they would both resign together. Both knew a fight was coming. Stephen Miller would make sure of it. Nielsen called her aide, Miles Taylor, now serving as her chief of staff, to let him know. It looks like Stephen is going to be the border czar, she said. This is effing bleak. We need to get ready. Taylor then called Stephen Miller and found the White House aide exceedingly excited to put on the crown, as he put it. Miller said he was going to go full Napoleon once in charge. I want to make sure you recognize that this moment was my coronation, Miller said. My coronation. That anecdote is just one of several new insights into an administration dead set on breaking laws, harming those with the least agency and staying in power at all costs. Baker and Glasser also detail moments when Trump asked Nielsen to cancel literally cancel the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to, quote, get rid of the effing judges. And when Trump asked John Kelly why his generals couldn't be more like Hitler's Nazi officers. They describe how close Trump actually was to pulling the U.S. out of NATO and how the director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, was so disturbed by Trump's interaction with Vladimir Putin that he wondered what the Russian leader had on Trump. Baker and Glasser, Paint a full picture of a former leader who is still front page news on a daily basis, who might at any moment put his hat back in the ring to return to the White House 2024, and who is still fighting multiple legal wars on multiple fronts. One tomorrow happening at a courthouse in Brooklyn over Mar-a-Lago documents. Another investigation happening in Georgia. Two ongoing with the Justice Department. Another with the New York Attorney General's office. And the list goes on and on. Joining us now is Peter Baker, New York Times Chief White House Correspondent and co-author of the new book, Out Tomorrow, with his wife and New Yorker journalist, Susan Glasser. It is called The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021. Peter, congratulations on this book. It is urgent in these times when Trump is no longer just in the rear view, but potentially on the horizon. And thank you for joining me tonight.
4: Thanks for having me, Alex. I really appreciate it.
1: So... You The book is called The Divider for a very specific reason. And you guys go in in the introduction, you sort of set the stage as to why you're calling this book The Divider and and sort of contrast the Trump administration to previous administrations. You make note of the fact that George H.W. Bush calls for a kindler, gentler America, a kinder, gentler America. Bill Clinton vowed to be the repairer of the breach. George W. Bush presented himself as a uniter and not a divider. Barack Obama famously declares there's not a blue America and a red America but the United States of America. Now, obviously, much of this never came to fruition, despite the lofty ambitions of all these administrations. But Trump very specifically came into office preaching about American carnage and living life on the dividing, living his administration's life, if you will, on the dividing line that split America down the middle. Talk to me a little bit about what you learned in the course of writing this book about how deep-seated that desire to divide truly was within this man who was our president.
4: Yeah, I think Alex, you put your finger on it. I really, you really do. Obviously, other presidents didn't live up to the ambitions, as you rightly said, but at least they voiced them. They believed that there was a role for a president in leading the country as a whole. They didn't always, you know, uh, you know, live up to their greatest aspirations, but they understood that that was something that in the American nature, that the, the leader of the country is supposed to represent all of us. For President Trump, it was always a strategy to divide. It wasn't just, uh, you know, a, at a campaign event where you need to attack the opponent. Dividing was... A part and parcel of his presidency from the beginning, dividing the country, dividing his own staff, dividing his party, dividing Washington, dividing even at times his own family. And it's just, it's the nature of who he is. Now, he wasn't the one who caused the polarization in America that we see today. He, in some ways, is a, a symptom of it, but he also, of course, took advantage of it. He recognized, in a way, what was already happening in our society, how much we were fragmenting, how much we were pulling up ourselves apart into, into different tribes. And that in fact, became the the launching path for him to get to the presidency in the first place.
1: The reason we focus a lot in that intro on immigration is because it's sort of the perfect um, capsule for Trump's de- desire to divide, right? This literal border wall, this notion of us versus them, who belongs here, who does who didn't. And you note in the book that Trump believes he won the 2016 election because of immigration. I found that really interesting. I think that there are a lot of issues that he stoked fear around, but none as forcefully and as effectively as immigration. Can you talk more about his remorse that he had to reverse some of the policies like child se- family separations at the border and his reluctance to actually embrace that reversal? He-, he wanted to go back to the period where agents were tearing children away from their parents.
4: He believed that there was almost nothing that could be done that was too tough When it comes to stopping people coming over the border and targeting immigrants in this country, uh, particularly illegal immigrants, but also legal immigrants at times. Some of the legislation he endorsed would have cut legal immigration to this country as well. So it's not just about whether uh, people have broken the law coming in or not. There was a visceral feeling inside the party when he started talking about building the wall at these rallies. He loved the response he was getting. It encouraged him to go further. He understood that he was crystallizing a policy down to just these three words, build the wall, build the wall. And it was a powerful message to him that to galvanize supporters, to get people to come to these rallies, to get them to vote for him, he needed to be as tough as he possibly could. And that meant unleashing people like Stephen Miller, hardliners on immigration who would be, uh, you know, relentless in looking for, Every possible policy way to, to attack immigration, reducing the refugee cap, uh, you know, getting rid of, of, you know, asylum claims to, to the extent that you possibly could. Time and time again, President Trump would tell Kirsten Nielsen, for instance, just shut the border, just shut it down, even though, of course, there is no legal uh, authority to do that. And when Nielsen would tell him that, he would just pound on her and pound on her, really bullying her to the point where she finally told colleagues that she, if she wrote a memoir, she would call it, Honey, Just Do It, because that was Trump's attitude. He didn't care if people thought it was illegal. He didn't care if people told him he didn't have the power. He wanted it done. And he kept pushing and pushing and pushing uh, until he found people who would do what he wanted to do.
1: Well, and I I found it staggering, you quote Stephen Miller at the moment he sort of consolidates power vis-a-vis immigration, saying, this is my coronation. The sense of entitlement and impunity is breathtaking, Peter. Can you talk a little bit more about the role that Stephen Miller played in being the architect of this and, and the sort of monarch, if you will, when it came to this draconian practice of, of child separate, family separations?
4: Well, Stephen Miller cared about this issue more than anybody else, and as a result, he became sort of the uh, the one person within the White House who made sure it was on the agenda every possible way it could be. He convened meetings of people from across the administration, sometimes without even cabinet secretaries knowing about it. You know, Kirsten Nielsen and John Kelly, they would discover only afterwards that Miller was pushing some policy with officials who didn't even uh, tell them what was going on. He was a very uh, uh, smart, savvy, bureaucratic player. He figured out how to enact policy that would accomplish the goals he wanted to, sometimes even if the president himself wasn't fully on board. And, and he was relentless in pushing back against people he thought were weak, like Kirsten Nielsen, like John Kelly, like anybody else who told him, wait a second, let's follow the law here. There's rules. There's there's also tradition. He didn't like uh, when people told him he can't do it. So this idea of being his coronation when finally he felt like, President Trump had given him the power, the authority, the the mandate to finally enact some of these policies he wanted to, particularly fa- family separation. It was a victory for him. And he was the one person, if you look back on these four years, the one aide who stays on President Trump's good side basically the entire time, never finds himself on the outs because he figured out manage- how to manage the president, how to accomplish the things he wanted to accomplish as best they could within the power they had uh, and, to, and to stay on his good side.
1: I mean, and there are plenty of cabinet secretaries and the revolving door at the Trump White House is something that's been written about a lot. Eventually, Nielsen leaves many of the other people that have their reservations leave. But to make a point that when the people who sort of understood institutional integrity, who cared about the law, when they leave, a vacuum opens up and that. Enter stage right, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. Specifically, you talk at the end of the presidency, Ivanka and Jared are basically done washing their hands of this presidency. And who is left but people who enable him? And it's a kind of delicate calculation. I mean, it's maybe not that delicate because people left in the end, but it's, it's, there's a downside, right? You're an enabler on one hand if you're, if you're in the White House and you have, and you're a sentient being who cares about the law, but you're also the last gatekeeper to an increasingly reckless president. Did you sense that there was that was there was concern after the fact when these officials left that they had effectively left no one minding the shop once they were gone?
4: Yeah, this is an enduring theme we came up with time and time again as we were researching this book. And I should say, by the way, we did the research on this book after President Trump left office. This is the work of 300 interviews we did in the last 18 months trying to learn what we didn't know at the time because people were freer to talk, were willing to talk, told us things that they didn't tell us at the time. So that's the value of doing a book like this is sort of an after-action report. But as you point out, it's sort of a live-action situation because it may not be over. But you're right. Time and time again, people who work there told us of this struggle that they had within themselves. Do they work for a president and administration that they found to be, and sometimes, you know, reckless, sometimes, uh, dangerous, pushing the edge of the, of the law? Or do they leave and, in some cases, be replaced by somebody that they consider to be worse, somebody who would be more uh, deferential to the president, more willing to do the things that they felt were unwise or reckless or illegal? And so that was the struggle that I think a lot of them had. And you can see that, it, in some cases, that's self-justifying, a way of rationalizing a decision because they liked being in power, they liked having top jobs, they had ambitions of their own. And sometimes it really was, I think, a, uh, you know, a very uh, painful struggle of they had over what their responsibility to the country was. And you can see there is a difference, right? John Kelly ends up at war, in effect, with President Trump inside the White House over all these things he thinks are wrong, uh, ultimately gets fired. If he had been there in those last days and last months of the administration, what would he have done? Would he have allowed the people talking about martial law into the Oval Office, or would he have thrown himself you know, into the, into, into the doorway to try to stop them. He might not have stopped what had happened overall, but he certainly would have been less willing to go along with it than his successor at that time, Mark Meadows, who in fact did seem to open up the door to almost anybody who wanted to come in, no matter how fringy or conspiratorial they might have been. So there is this argument that in fact it did make a difference when people were there who were willing to go along with some of the, uh, more extreme versions of, 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 of policy that the president wanted to go along, but at, at a cost to themselves and to, and to others.
1: Guardrails, the last remaining guardrails. It is critical reading right now, Peter, uh, especially as we enter a midterm cycle and another presidential election cycle. Peter Baker, New York Times chief White House correspondent and co-author of The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021, which comes out tomorrow. Peter, thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. We have much more ahead this hour following a particularly questionable moment during a Trump rally this past weekend. We will take a look at how Donald Trump may be subtly or not so subtly courting followers of the extremist fringe QAnon conspiracy. But next, Samantha Power, one of America's top diplomats, joins me live on set as world leaders convene for the first in-person U.N. General Assembly in three years. That is next. Stay with us. This evening, the U.S. Senate received a classified briefing from senior Biden officials on the situation in Ukraine. The House will receive a similar briefing tomorrow morning. This is a complex and pivotal moment in the Ukraine war. On the one hand, there's been this stunning counteroffensive from Ukrainian forces in the country's east. They've reclaimed territory from Russia and sent Russian troops fleeing. That shift has prompted observers for the first time in months to talk cautiously about Ukraine, maybe winning the war outright, something that was previously sort of unthinkable. But this was the scene today in one of those newly liberated towns, one one that was liberated from Russian occupation. More bodies were exhumed from a mass grave in Izum. Ukrainian officials say they have recovered 146 bodies so far, including many civilians and including children. Some bodies show evidence of torture and execution. And this one site may contain more than 400 victims. But the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov today called the whole thing a lie. Now, Ukraine is painstakingly gathering evidence from Izum and other cities in the hopes they can one day prove in court that the atrocities committed by the Russians are very much real. Meanwhile, the downstream collateral effects of the war across Europe and the globe are only deepening. And they don't look to be going anywhere soon, particularly the destabilization of food and energy supplies. When it comes to the human toll of those ripple effects from the war, the person at the forefront of the U.S. government's response is Samantha Power. As the head of USAID, the country's agency for international development, in recent weeks, Administrator Power has been traveling from crisis point to crisis point around the world to places where a combination of natural and political disasters have wrecked infrastructure and caused dangerous food insecurity. And all of it is aggravated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, not to mention climate change. And Samantha Power brings to this role a very particular history. She served in the Obama administration on the National Security Council and then as Obama's ambassador to the United Nations. But even before that, she was widely recognized as one of the world's experts on war crimes and genocide and bringing the perpetrators of those kinds of atrocities to justice. And at this precarious moment for Ukraine and the world, Samantha Power is here in New York, where world leaders are gathering for the U.N. General Assembly. And I am very pleased to say she joins me in studio now. Samantha Power, USAID Administrator. Madam Administrator Samantha Power, my friend, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on set. It is a, uh, I'm going to say, sort of terrifying time in the world. Um, And I want to first start with Ukraine and those images of the, you know, the the digging up of graves in Izum, Uh, the atrocities that look to have been committed there. Do you think, and this is as someone who has written the book on this and who understands this issue in a deeply emotionally granular way, do you think there is a chance that Putin will be held accountable for this? Or anybody will be held accountable, I should say.
2: It's a great question. And um, certainly those images, those lives cry out for accountability now from the grave. I'd say that this was the biggest worry all along with this conflict is that you would combine a capacity for atrocities that Putin had already shown himself capable of in places like Aleppo, teaming up with the Assad regime or backing Assad as he gassed people to death with the military prowess of a superpower. Yeah. And when you see the lines being pushed back and every time they are pushed back, what is unearthed? no pun intended, you see the stakes of this of this conflict. And in terms of the accountability question, all I can speak to is from my own experience, being in Bosnia, mm-hmm. where again, you had similar atrocities, mass graves, um, targeted attacks, use of sexual violence, uh, the killing of children, along with elderly men and women. Um, and the perpetrators just strutted around with that, sense of impunity Mm -hmm. that you see in the territories that Russian forces have occupied and you have seen in Crimea and in Donbass since 2014. And it was Milosevic. These names now, you know, became kind of iconic associated with war crimes, Mladic, Karadzic. And they were so smug and they were so sure. And all the international community could do and did led by the U S is document the war crimes, painstakingly interview the survivors those scenes that we see uh, in Izum today and in Bucha not long ago, uh, those are the same scenes we saw play out. And people wondered, will it ever go to any constructive use? Mm-hmm. But even as in the in recent weeks, when you hear grumblings of discontent in yeah. Moscow, you start to imagine a scenario where, at some point. You know there'll be different leadership in in in, in Russia. I mean, just by definition, the actuarial tables are such that that will happen at some point, uh, no, no, no matter what. And so life is long. Uh, certainly, the sanctions, the export controls, all of those uh, other punishments that have been put in place, accountability becomes part and parcel to any scenario, even after a peace agreement. You know where those things get. Um, re-examined or or loosened. And so the incentive structure changes over time, and it's up to the United States and other countries to stick together Mm -hmm. and to continue to to not only document and put yourself in a position to hold people accountable, but see the International Criminal Court process through, see the UN Human Rights Council process through, support the OSCE, support, we we at USAID support uh, Ukrainian uh, NGOs on the ground who are now, they've set up 22 offices across the country just painstakingly documenting case after case. And there are 15,000 incidents of war crimes that have been documented so far.
1: Yeah, I think uh, Ukraine's top prosecutor said they've identified 34,000 potential war crimes, which is just a staggering number. And I think that, I mean, that number alone can, I think, cause some people to be defeatist. I know you're hopeful that you will, you're pragmatic as well, mm-hmm. Time. Is marches forward, regimes change, but I wonder how much you think disinformation and the current Russian posture is a different calculation than you know it, the the sort of posture of genocidal leaders in the late nineties. Right? We have we are living in a time where. The Russians can literally take the stance that none of this is happening. All of these, all of this talk about whether it's war crimes or food insecurity, grain shortages caused by Putin's war in Ukraine, that's a confection of the West. That's not real. That ability to do that and say that and have people believe them seems like a new development. Or do you think the practice of misinformation may be a different through different channels, but ultimately is the same as it was?
2: Well, I'd say that there's, you know, various countries, uh, especially those involved in conflict, have a, a history of misinformation. What's what's different is the hundreds of millions of dollars the Russians are investing in media penetration around the world. And having traveled, for example, to Kenya, to Somalia, to Zambia, to Malawi, to Sri Lanka, to Pakistan, just in the last couple of months, I've seen again, the information overload by the Russian Federation through RT and Sputnik and these other uh, media. But I don't really get the sense that many people are buying it. Now, one piece of evidence came early in the conflict. Getting 141 votes to condemn the Russian invasion at the United Nations may not sound like a lot. There are 193 countries in the UN, but I know firsthand from working there, most countries want a duck. When a hard vote comes up, 141 countries st- stuck their heads up, even though there was coercion and intimidation, harassment, you know, claims that resources were going to be cut off. They still took that stand. And many countries who abstained and did want to stay on the sidelines of the vote, didn't want to antagonize Putin of all people. Uh, you talk to them privately and they're horrified mm. because every country has an interest in territorial integrity uh, being. Sacred, And in one country, not lopping off part of a neighbor militarily. And as quaint as that can sound in an era where Putin is seeking to do just that, I do think it explains even the recent statements by President Prime Minister Modi, by President Xi and others. There's a lot of discomfort, even among those countries that are, you know, whose publics are imbibing Russian misinformation, as is occurring, of course, in China. But still the leaders have a sense that there's something awful and massively destabilizing that one country has done to another and thus to the international system. The fact that she and Modi are speaking
1: out in their way way about this is significant. I have one thousand other questions to ask you, but we don't have time for them. I want to (laughs) know. I want you to come back so that we could talk about Pakistan and climate change and how up to up to the job our aid systems are in terms of the crises we face as a globe. I know that you're in town for the U.N. General Assembly. We take we thank you for taking some time out of your very busy and important schedule to share your thoughts with us. Thanks for your time. Great to be with you, always, USAID Administrator and former U.S. and U.S. U.N. Ambassador Samantha Power. Thanks again. Still ahead this hour, just how cozy is Donald Trump getting with the QAnon crowd? Scenes from a rally this weekend suggest quite cozy. And five years since Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, Hurricane Fiona has devastated the island with most of the island in the dark tonight. Stay with us.
0: It has now been more than
1: a day since Hurricane Fiona made landfall in Puerto Rico. But for the island's inhabitants, the storm is far from over. Tonight, more than a million people remain without power and about two thirds of the island lacks access to running water after the slow moving hurricane dumped more than 30 inches of rain on the island this weekend. Hurricane Fiona is expected to continue to dump water across both Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic throughout tonight. The National Hurricane Center is warning that these rains could produce, produce life-threatening and catastrophic flooding, along with mudslides and landslides. Already, one person in the French Caribbean island archipelago of Guadeloupe has been confirmed dead. His house literally swept away by the flood, and more than a thousand people have been rescued from flooding in Puerto Rico itself. If you've been watching coverage of the hurricane, you've likely already seen this video of a bridge in a central mountain town being washed away by the floods. With power out across the island, news outlets still don't have that many visuals to show you what's happening. But this video is actually incredibly emblematic of the overall issue. The bridge here is a temporary bridge that was installed by the National Guard after Hurricane Maria in 2017. It was meant to be temporary. It was meant to be replaced by a permanent bridge that could withstand this sort of thing. But five years later, that still hadn't happened. Efforts to rebuild and fortify the island's infrastructure have been plagued by corruption, mismanagement, political red tape, more storms, and a series of earthquakes. It took 11 months after Hurricane Maria for all the power to be restored on the island. 11 months. You may remember that the first company Puerto Rico hired to fix the grid after Maria was insanely underqualified for the task. They had a total of two full-time employees, but somehow they got a no-bid contract to repair the entire island's power lines. That contract was canceled. After that, the president of a second company was arrested for bribing a FEMA official to land a similar contract. Both the FEMA official and the president of that company have since pleaded guilty to offering and accepting gifts surrounding that deal. On top of all the contracting scandals, it took three years for the Trump administration to approve FEMA funding to rebuild Puerto Rico's power grid. And a lot of that money has still not been spent. As of last month, the island's government had only spent about $5.3 billion of the $28 billion that FEMA had allocated for post-Maria recovery. Last year, after declaring bankruptcy, the government-run power company privatized and effectively leased its infrastructure to a private company on a 15-year contract. That company was supposed to help repair and fortify the power system. But residents say outages are still frequent, if not actually worse than before. And large protests against the company, those have become a regular occurrence. Just last month, Puerto Rico's governor, whose own administration was behind the privatization, he denounced the company. So as dangerous as it is that Puerto Rico tonight is without power and clean water, it is unfortunately not unexpected. The governor says he expects restoration will take days, not months, like Hurricane Maria. As for water, he also hopes that situation will improve by the end of the week. And President Biden assured Puerto Rico's governor today that the number of federal support personnel on the island would, quote, increase substantially. FEMA's administrator Deanne Criswell, she herself is scheduled to travel there tomorrow. Tomorrow is the fifth anniversary of Hurricane Maria devastating the island, and the memories are still fresh. We will be right back. On Saturday, Donald Trump held a rally for Ohio Senate candidate J.D. Vance in Youngstown, Ohio. His most fervent followers showed up as they usually do, but they also did something that they don't normally do. This is a video from that rally. See if you notice anything different.
5: We are a nation that allowed Russia to devastate a country, Ukraine, killing hundreds of thousands of people, and it will only get worse It would never have happened with me as your commander in chief.
1: You see what the crowd is doing there with their hands, holding up a single finger. The reason all of those people in the crowd were participating in that gesture is likely because that song you heard playing while Trump spoke, that song sounds just like a song that is associated with the QAnon conspiracy. The song is called Where We Go One, We Go All. Now, Trump officials denied that the song they were playing at that rally was the QAnon song. They claim it was a different royalty-free song they use at rallies. But the crowd at that rally clearly believed what they were hearing was that QAnon conspiracy anthem. And they were familiar enough with it to make that gesture as it played. For years now, we have been watching Trump communicate with fringe and extremist groups using dog whistles, some of them none too subtle. He famously told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by during the 2020 election. And just a few weeks later, he refused to disavow QAnon at an NBC News town hall.
0: Let me ask you about QAnon. It is this theory that uh, Democrats are a satanic pedophile ring and that you are the savior of that. Now, can you just once and for all state that that is completely not true and disavow QAnon in its entirety?
4: I know nothing about QAnon. I just told you. I know very little. You told me, but what you tell me doesn't necessarily make it fact. I hate to say that. I know nothing about it.
5: I do know they are very much against uh, pedophilia. They fight it very hard.
1: Like I said, we have seen some of this before from Trump. But after January 6th, seeing Trump appear to openly court QAnon, Feels dangerous. After all, QAnon's beliefs are far stranger and even more fringe than your run-of-the-mill election denialism. They believe the Democratic Party is full of secret Satan-worshipping pedophiles. When Donald Trump was tweeting complaints about Mueller's Russia investigation, QAnon adherents were promoting wild conspiracies that Mueller was secretly working with Trump to arrest Hillary Clinton. They not only believe that Trump is still president— but also that one day Joe Biden will be forcibly removed from office and that Trump will be reinstated as commander-in-chief. It is these kinds of beliefs that often lead people to dismiss the QAnon movement, especially when there are other explicitly violent far-right movements to worry about, like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, groups that helped plot the January 6th attack on the Capitol. But there were plenty of QAnon followers leading the charge on January 6th as well, and their movement has far more reach than any of those other groups. Last year, a poll by the Public Religion Research Institute found that QAnon has become as popular as some major religions, with 15% of Americans say they believe that the U.S. is secretly controlled by a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles. 15% of the country! If Donald Trump is now courting the legions of Q followers openly in public rallies, how concerned should we all be? Joining us now is Jonathan Greenblatt, national director and CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. Jonathan, i find this staggering it's as if we've all been sleeping and not realized the sort of poison that has come in with the tide and the degree to which it yep. has spread all over this country how has this happened how has QAnon gotten this kind of reach
5: well so QAnon goes back to 2017 when it first showed up on 4chan which is sort of a corner of the web that was favored by extremists And Q, this supposed government insider who couldn't reveal his identity, started doing Q drops where he would share information. And again, he started to contrive these he, she, it, started to contrive these wild conspiracies that, as you said, there was a cabal of pedophiles, Satan worshiping pedophiles, manipulating the deep state in order to change the country. Uh, so this started to gain steam when their followers, Anons, mm-hmm. hence the QAnon, started spreading this stuff from off of 4chan onto Gab, onto Reddit onto YouTube, onto Twitter and Facebook and really all over social media.
1: And now what it feels like we're seeing is a kind of dovetailing of the forces, right? So that the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, QAnon, various elected representatives in the Republican Party are all saying kind of the same things about stolen elections, about Trump being the rightful leader And it feels like that has helped like launch this paranoid conspiracy fear mongering into the mainstream of the Republican Party.
5: Yeah. I mean, I think conspiracy theories have become the coin of the realm where more people are getting their news from TikTok or Twitter than from television or The Times. I mean, we're really in a moment. And QAnon has preyed on this. And as you made the point, spread dramatically because none of the normal filters or barriers that would push out such craziness are there to mediate it. So look, at ADL, we track extremists. And I can tell you right now, the extremists are celebrating. They're celebrating on Gab, on 4chan, on 8chan and those, what remains of those sites. They're celebrating on Truth Social. They feel validated because QAnon, after January 6th, didn't come to pass. Right. After Trump actually wasn't the president on January 21st, 2021, they were in decline or in a kind of recession. But they tried to build upon the COVID-19 and the anti-vaxxer movement. And now they're trying to seeing this as a moment in time where they can come back into the mainstream.
1: How much does this all conspire to increase their numbers, the investigations into Trump, the the search of Mar-a-Lago, the anti-government rhetoric that Trump is stoking, the, you know, I'm sure claims of a stolen 2024, 2022 midterm election. I mean, how much does that then circulate more? Or, uh, juice into the well, This QAnons. is what's so
5: frightening about conspiracy theories. Anything sort of validates them and proves them, right? Yeah. And QAnon is almost a cult. They're unwilling to see the reality, even though it's right in front of them. So indeed, to your point, all these different factors, they play into their minds as if, oh, this validates this shadow conspiracy that's manipulating things. And look at ADL. Again, we track conspiracies. We fight anti-Semitism. And there's a lot of anti-Semitism yeah. in this movement. The blood libel, theories about power manipulation. This is as if it was came right out of the protocols of the elders of Zion. A shadowy cabal of globalists manipulating events. And this is why we should all be scared. This isn't normal to have one of the two major heads, of one of the major parties in the United States trafficking in this, posting things on his social media that the storm is Is coming. coming. I mean, this is an apocalyptic idea, Alex. They feel like there's some Armageddon coming. And it's not just that Joe Biden... Will not be the president. He should be tried and executed in public, yes. along with Hillary Clinton and Chuck Schumer and all these other perceived enemies.
1: Yeah, the idea that these enemies should be summarily executed, hung, whatever, is—I mean, it should ter- it all should ter- of this should terrify everybody. Yeah,
5: this isn't normal, and we're all like frogs in the boiling water. And you know, we think, oh, Trump, what harm can he do? But this is incredibly harmful. It's like a child playing with explosive chemicals, because the reality is, is that we've seen examples of where QAnon has inspired violence. Yeah. We've seen people killed by individuals who are motivated by these QAnon ideas. So I think this is the moment for Republicans, responsible Republicans and people in public, you know, public figures to step up and finally say, stop enough. This has got
1: to end. 15% of the country believes this stuff is real. Jonathan Greenblatt, national director and CEO of the ADL Anti-Defamation League. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. We will be right back. Before we go, I have some very happy news to share. I and the whole team want to congratulate our beloved senior producer, Jen, the wind beneath our wings, and her husband, Matt, on the newest member of their family, Meet a Brendan. Brendan was born this morning and clocked in at a whopping six pounds and 13 ounces. Mom says he is, quote, the chillest little guy ever. You got a good one, Jen. <laughs> Mazel tov. And congratulations, of course, are also in order to Big Brother Liam, who is now promoted to the official title of Big Brother. We are sending you guys all of our love. Jen, Matt, Liam and Brendan will have an ice cream party when you come back to work. Now, that is the way to start the week. That does it for us tonight. We will see you again tomorrow. And Rachel will be back here next Monday.
0: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley High Performance Sofas and Recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean.